Sure. Um, my, t my concern also is that it's used irresponsibly sometimes. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we are telling BIPOC, queer, or other marginalized students or others to practice self-care because we're not offering community care. Right. We're saying like, go do this thing to take care of yourself because we've created a structure that's harmful for you. Right. Um, but it's on you to find a way to counterbalance that. Welcome to Student Affairs Now the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. Today, we're discussing innovative campus approaches to college student mental health and wellness with Dr. Inga Hansen and Dr. Drea Letabendi. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope that you find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Now, today's episode is sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. This episode is also sponsored by EverFi, the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities. EverFi is the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. Now, as I mentioned, I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I'm broadcasting from Williamsville, New York, near the campus of the University at Buffalo, where I serve as the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty and Student Affairs and the Unit Diversity Officer for the Graduate School of Education. I'm also an Associate Professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs programs. UB is situated on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Haudenosaunee people. Drea and Anga, I am thrilled that you're here. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of Student Affairs Live and welcome to the podcast. And I'd like you to begin by telling us a little bit about you your current role on campus, a bit about your pathway through student affairs, if that's where you see yourself, and the counseling and into the work that you do today. Um, I was wondering if, um, Drea, if you could begin for us. Absolutely. It is such a pleasure to be a part of this conversation. My name is Dr. Drea Letamendi. I am a licensed clinical psychologist, professor, and mental health consultant. I received my undergraduate degree from Cornell University, just upstate, uh, upstate New York, uh, and then my um, PhD from UCSD. I currently serve UCLA. I actually have dual roles um, in student affairs. I'm an associate director of mental health training, intervention, and response in residential life, and the interim director of our Student Resilience Center, which is known as RISE. I'd say that, um, you know, it's important to mention that one of the ways that I kind of navigated my journey as, as an undergraduate and graduate student was um, through some of the topics that we're going to talk about today. I delivered a TEDx talk called Capes, Cows, and Courage, which kind of details my experience uh, with imposter syndrome and, and finding my way. Uh, and um, I also am a consultant for organizations, media companies, and the entertainment industry around how to represent mental health in really positive ways. Finally, my pronouns are she, her, and Aya, and I want to acknowledge 
that UCLA sits on the unceded land of Tawangar, which is um, the land of the Gabrielino and Tongva peoples. Thank you for having me. Oh, great for you to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Inga. Inga. Thank you. Yes, wonderful to be here and to I'm just looking forward to a really juicy conversation with both of you. Um, so my name is uh, Dr. Inga Hansen. I use she, her pronouns, also a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm here at Stanford University, which is on the unceded lands of the Muwekma Ohlone tribes. Um, in my pathway um, getting here, um, I was hired originally as a staff psychologist. Um, I think back in the times that we were thinking a little bit about we're going to have an LGBTQ specialist psychologist and have evolved into a current role, which is the co-founder and director of the Wyland Health Initiative, which I look forward to talking about, and also the director of well-being at Stanford. And a little bit of that history just really arose from a desire to center the needs of queer, trans, non-binary students um, who weren't being adequately served before. And I just have a real passion around the intersection between mental health and well-being and equity, inclusion, and justice, and um, looking at how we can kind of talk more about synchronicity between the two. Wow, we could almost do a whole show on just talking about your origin stories and where you folks came from and how you came to this, because I find it fascinating. So I'm going to have to really reel myself in to make sure that I don't just keep asking you questions there. So I'm going to immediately switch us to um, um, to talking about this topic. We've been doing mental health on campus forever. And like you both said, that there are some new directions that we had to head. Um, headed to make sure that we're serving students who deserve to be um, served um, to the fullest of our ability. So what I wanted to um, ask you was, why is it important to consider new approaches and models to health and wellness for college students? In what ways is this particularly true for BIPOC, queer and trans students and other marginalized students? And either one of you can take that first and then we can um, and have you both answer it though. <laughs> so I think about this a lot and I feel like it's important to be thinking about new approaches because in so many realms of our lives um, here elsewhere we keep doing things in a certain way not necessarily because it's the best way or the most effective way but because it's the way we've always done things um, we get into habits and then those things seem right because they seem familiar um, and I think this is particularly important here because sometimes the way we've always done things is an approach that's a colonized lens. It doesn't center the needs of queer, trans, non-binary students, BIPOC students, and people with other like racialized, marginalized identities, right? Um, or they're just not even taken into account. And so one of the things that I see with developing new approaches is that um, it benefits not only those students who have been traditionally marginalized or disempowered, but it really you know, develops everybody because it allows for a lens that's actually, it's more inclusive, healthier, and gives us kind of a broader perspective on what mental health and well-being can look like. Mm-hmm. Sure. Dre, what would you add to that? I absolutely agree. I believe that we started to see this increase in um, distress on our campuses before the pandemic, right? We started to see these trends where um, although students were um, 
expressing interest in services, you know, those numbers were higher, right? Students have higher levels of mental health literacy, they're service seeking, um, they're much more aware, you know, this generation is particularly insightful um, and educated about mental health, which is great. Um, but our institutions have to catch up with that, right? And what we were seeing were very large numbers of students in need of services. Um, numbers across campuses were one in 10 students were experiencing suicidal ideation. Um, which is, with suicide is, is the second leading cause of death in, in uh, traditional college age students. Um, so that's a concern. One in three students were showing um, levels of chronic depression. And um, you know, nationally, students were reporting that stress in particular was impacting their academic success. And so to answer your question very concretely, and I'm sure we'll talk about the pandemic as we have this conversation, uh, you know, to be as concise as possible, the pandemic simply amplified those numbers um, and, and made it more, uh, I, I think, um, made it more um, of a common uh, conversation. Uh, not just us in this space right now, but others in our community started to talk about mental health, which is, you know, again, a great thing when we see that dialogue. Um, but what I can what I can say about the direction is that as we started to see this this these levels of distress, um, we also had to kind of shift the narrative and shift the culture. We aren't only talking about how stress impacts academic success. We're looking at the holistic experience of students, which should not be a radical thing, but I, th I think is generally different now. Um, how are you successful interpersonally? How are you successful with your identity development? How are you successful with your social belonging, um, your mental well-being? All of these things relate to one another, intertwine, and impact the students' experience and their ability to reach their academic goals, certainly. Um, but they also impact one another in the sense that all of these other levels of experience um, should be honored and given dignity um, for, you know, in, in the community of college students. Sure. You know, it's, it's really interesting that we had to refocus on that, because if you think about the history of student affairs, the tradition of student affairs, it's talking about dealing with the, the whole student, the, um, the um, you know, all aspects of the student. And yet, we again, um, narrowed that so far, and it was all aspects of certain students. And so when I look at your two centers in particular, you highlight the needs of particular populations. And um, I'm wondering if you can talk about how, I don't know, maybe how and why that is so important on campuses today and how they weren't, perhaps these students weren't being quite served well enough in more traditional um, centers. I can speak to that a little bit. The Rice Center at UCLA emerged in early 2019. And we, we really um, launched the center uh, based on the increasing, you know, acknowledgement and understanding the research, everything that, that pointed toward more uh, support for students in the direction of their mental well-being. And we knew that despite the increase in mental health literacy among students, uh, that a traditional counseling clinic um, wasn't necessarily the right space for everybody. And there are a number of reasons um, why that's the case. 
um, just to name a couple, um, you know, for one, we simply do not have the capacity to see the number of students that we'd like to at, at a traditional counseling clinic, right? There is a very, um, you know, I appreciate that we're already mentioning um, how we can decolonize mental health services at institutions. I think one of the ways that we do that is to look at our systems and look at this kind of, um, you know, uh, a traditional uh, service delivery and realize that it's not necessarily ideal for everybody. So I'll put it that way. And then second, the reality is that a lot of students can benefit from resilience building, stress management, and other well-being um, kind of experiences that don't have to happen in a clinical setting. You know, those, those experiences can happen um, at, at something like a resilience center where we have these open spaces for drop-ins, um, counselors and healers available to do mindfulness exercises, um, advising, and kind of helping students navigate uh, the really challenging campus that we have around services. How do you get financial support? How do you get um, academic support? How do you, um, you know, manage other uh, aspects of your life that maybe you don't necessarily need a, a licensed psychologist to provide that, but certainly a support person who can, who can kind of get you set and, and give you these tools in your utility belt or your, your, your tool belt. And, and that has really been the um, mission of the Rice Center is how can we build the capacity and the experiences of mental well-being for the entirety of our campus and, and, you know, do it in a way that's accessible and inclusive. We don't ask about insurance. We, you know, only take limited information about the student's record in terms of, you know, are you a registered student? And sometimes even then we have some exceptions because we know some students fall behind. So this really is about welcoming students to an inclusive space and, you know, even being very direct and concrete, addressing why an institution that is very large and, and historically a, a PWI, you know, could be a place of belonging for them. Well, you know, one of the things in looking at the website, and that's the only way I know the RISE Center, but I was very um, attracted to it. And I realized that one of the things is that it seemed to have, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, it, there was also a, a deliberate um, um, focus and attention on BIPOC students as well, so that it somehow was um, designed to respond to those needs in addition to all of the other areas that you've mentioned. Am I wrong there, or is that um, a deliberate Absolutely. Absolutely, and I think that's a consequence of kind of unshackling ourselves from some of the systemic Mm -hmm. components of a traditional clinic, you know, again, not having to attach ourselves. Um, if, of course, we're, um, we're very mindful about privacy, we um, ensure that we're a safe space, you know, there are some things we take into account. Um, but we don't have the same oversight um, as, as the counseling clinic. And, and so we can, we can really um, be innovative and choose, um, choose ways that are liberating uh, for our students. And what we found is that you know, if you build it, they'll come. And what ended up occurring is that many uh, uh, communities of color and many students who didn't feel well served by other spaces on campus felt that this was a space that um, that brought them uh, validation, affirmation, space to grow. And 
it's the partnerships that we can also have with, with let's say, the LGBTQ Center, uh, the Undocumented uh, Allyship Center. There are ways that we can kind of partner intentionally to also bring in communities. Um, and, and the final thing I'll say, at least in answering your question about this, is over the last 18 months, um, you know, to, uh, to put it quite simply, the, the unrest, racial violence, political division that we've seen, um, students are very, very eager to have spaces of dialogue and healing, and we were ready. And I think that's why sort of we had these welcome arms to, um, to students who in the last um, 18 months or so felt in- extremely exhausted from racial battle fatigue, from um, uh, Zoom fatigue, from um, the you know, threats and the harm that has been done to them um, throughout this socio-political era. Sure. You know, and um, and I I see something very similar with the center at at Stanford primarily designed around LGBTQ students or or perhaps um, solely, you know, um, designed around that. And and I guess the question is twofold. Um, It's the, the previous question, but it's also this. Why did we have to create another center for this? What needs weren't being met is what I really mean. What needs weren't being met in our other uh, more traditional counseling center and, and student services center that this center was able to come out and, and um, grab? Yes. Well, first off, I'm so enjoying hearing about the RISE Center, and I'm hearing a lot of parallels, so this is fun. Um, and yeah, I think I'll talk about where the needs originally came from, and then it's really evolved over time. I think there's been a shift that we've needed to keep up with in terms of what the need is. But when I first started at Stanford, um, a lot of students who identified as queer, and I'll just kind of use queer as inclusive sure. term, um, were just, they weren't coming into counseling services. They right. weren't coming into medical services either. Um, you know, some were, but for the most part, they were steering clear of it um, because they would hear from their friends or peers that it wasn't an environment that was going to meet their needs. You know, they weren't seeing visible signs that it was a space for them. And I think that was one of our areas of learning, you know, back 10, 12 years ago, is that there's not such thing as a neutral environment, especially, I think, but maybe in any environment, but I think particularly if you're doing something that feels vulnerable, um, kind of those like white walls and neutral art, you know, that's abstract and whatever, and magazine, like people, whatever, like people don't read that as neutral. They're looking for signs that I belong here. And if you don't see that, then you're assuming that this place is not going to get me. And I think that was actually our starting place. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we saw from survey data and from students reports. And then they'd hear it from their peers. And then, you know, it was, um, it was an ongoing issue. And so in the beginning, we were building this um, just to have something that students would engage with us and get some of their needs met. And we had to do a lot of learning around what that looked like. And, um, and we didn't want to be kind of signaling that we were an environment that could meet their needs if it wasn't if we couldn't back it up we're not just going to put a bunch of rainbow flags in a space and say like we're cool now um so that was like where we started right so what kind of like training staff to get to the point that students could come in and be met and held and then for us like thinking about the needs of queer students there's a significant medical component too so students who are on a gender journey what does it look like if they need hormones if they need surgery if if you know if there's if that's part of their journey making sure that we're not making a referral which then ends up being 
a really negative or traumatic experience for them. So that's where things started and that's what the need was in the beginning. Um, getting people in the door and then giving them a positive experience in the door. And I think from there, um, part of what's happened is this kind of this walk between how do we make sure that these particular needs are met in a way that isn't just lip service, um, but that we're not kind of siloing one corner of the services. So that's like these two staff are going to work with queer students and everybody else works with, you know, hear people say like regular students. Right, right, right. Um, and as though anybody is regular. Um, and where I think it's moved from there is recognizing that there's a lot of components around us, a medicalized system that um, doesn't feel good for our students, even if we're making this concerted effort and even if the staff are trained and so on. So we kind of started with, here's some staff who are specialized to let's train all the staff so there's no wrong doors. So everybody's prepared to some degree to meet the needs of these students to more recently an opportunity to think, should we actually be in a separate building? Is there something around just kind of the history of these spaces that doesn't feel right? And we had that opportunity recently. And so at this point, um, it's a mixed blessing, right? Because it's siloed again in the sense that the main counseling is across campus from Wyland. Um, but I think having Wyland over here offering these counseling and other services right next to well-being in a building that doesn't feel um, like there's nothing that feels pathologizing or clinical or anything like that associated with it has been a more recent evolution. And then I think similar to what you were talking about, Drea, like really thinking broad, more broadly about what we mean about well-being and flourishing. So queer yoga and you know workshops and conversations and consultation sessions that we're not just talking about clinical services and training. Again, I could sit here and talk about Rise and Wyland, you know, for a while because I think there's much to be instructive, but I think um, when we look at Stanford and the images that we all have about Stanford from, you know, those of us who aren't on the campus or look at UCLA in both the same ways, well, there are a lot of campuses that aren't like that. They aren't as well resourced. And, you know, I know people on the campuses themselves think we aren't either. But um, in terms of that, it looks like oh, we're smaller. We can't, we just don't have the space or um, the justification for having um, separate centers or a couple of centers. So my question then is how, I want you to think with our viewers about how colleges and universities address health and wellness of students differently. Um, how should student affairs who don't work in those health and wellness related offices address these same issues without the kinds of resources that you might have available? So what are some of the, the basics? What are the things that we can do or should do differently? Inga, do you want to take that one first? Sure. So I think some of my first thoughts just feel super broad, but I think sure. one of my hopes is that we really move to thinking about health and well-being of students as foundational to the health of the institution. Mm-hmm. I know you had made a comment before around just associating with like um, how it impacts academics. And I think one of, one of my hopes for the future is, can we get to a point, I think you're to, to what you were saying before too, Drea, like that we see this as just intertwined with the mission of the institution, not kind of like something that's reactive when there's a crisis, if there's a student suicide, if the university gets sued, if there's bad press, um, but actually like 
um, or if students aren't able to meet their academics, then it's a problem. I want us to get to a point that we're thinking about it beforehand, before there's an issue, and it's just woven into the fabric everywhere. You know, that's, that's my dream. Um, and I think that that means um, really thinking about services that aren't necessarily labeled as services, right? Um, that can be everything from the language that's used on syllabi. You know, um, the language that's used if a student is um, actually getting a letter, it was a study that was done here around if a student's going on academic probation, just how we phrase that letter and whether we talk about it as an opportunity for self-reflection and growth or whether we talk about it as kind of you've messed up and now you're going to have a meeting where you're going to get a finger pointed at you has a long-term effect on how the student does academically later. And so what I'm hoping is having these conversations that go between like what faculty are doing so that they have some of those tools that make it kind of easy. A lot of them are really motivated, but then it's about, you know, oh, well, if you can give me that phrase that I can put in the syllabus to mention these things, if you can just give me some of these tools so each person isn't having to figure it out for themselves, but like, here's a toolkit you can use. Mm -hmm. And and then you can kind of decide for your own department or your own office or whatnot um, what applies to you. I think I feel like universities do well with kind of a balance of structure and freedom, you know, um, and and really against for some of us who are in these predominantly white institutions, really like explicitly calling out perfectionism, work culture. Um, and and the ways that those impact the men like mental health and well-being of our students and thinking specifically around psychological safety and, uh -huh. and how that's really in my mind kind of the intersection between mental health and well-being and um, equity inclusion and justice work, right? Like if people aren't feeling psychologically safe from the beginning, then they're not gonna be able to engage in any of the other resources that we offer. Yeah, I love that. I cannot agree more with what you just said and how I would put it in my experience uh, is is very similar, which is look at, you know, it, you don't need a clinical psychologist to do this part, which is to look at the system with intention, with, um, with a great amount of curiosity um, and, and loving, um, you know, we can say like loving challenge, like uh, a, a loving approach, but um, an interrogation, honestly. Um, and so that's why I love what you just said, because it means we have to look at what's making us unwell. It is very clear that our students are exhausted and tired and stressed. Um, you know, we're on campuses where we say, like, this is a high achieving campus. Well, guess what? You know, all campuses have communities who are goal oriented, who are interested in bettering themselves, who are interested in education. That's why they're there, right? So I think we dismantle this idea that we're this elite group, that, you know, we have to be perfect, that we have to be on our A game. And I think as leaders, and this can speak to, to your audience, uh, if you're involved in higher education, you need to demonstrate and model humanity and um, your own setbacks, your own growth, your own development in areas, this, these gaps. And, and I think that humility can be really helpful for the development of a campus. Um, specifically, I'll be concrete about two things. One is that um, when I was brought to UCLA, the uh, student affairs division did something really interesting. They decided to create a mental health um, position that would be in residential life, not, not in sort of the traditional uh, clinic. So uh, sort of embedded in residential life. 
Exactly. So my office is in residential life. Um, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily have these 24 seven hours, but I, I do have the flexibility to be in, in uh, the buildings and in the dorms and kind of work closely with our first responders, our resident directors, our RAs, mm-hmm. and to kind of make it known that mental health and, and generally our mental well-being is everybody's business. It's not just that, you know, these centers that are responsible. But when I talk about suicide prevention, and one of the biggest initiatives I started at UCLA was um, revising the campus suicide prevention model. We call it suicide safe. And when I developed that, one of the biggest messages was, you know, we're all in this and we're all responsible as stewards to recognize someone at risk and to intervene. You don't have to have a license. You don't have to be a a clinician. You don't have to be a professor. You could be a neighbor. You could be a roommate. You could be an RA, right? And to kind of bring those skills in and really give our students the competence and confidence to kind of handle that. Um, And then the second thing I'll say, so, so that's an example of kind of like, yeah, be innovative. Um, Think about your system and what it needs. We're a very large residential community, right? So, so put people in those spaces. Um, So if you're a commuter campus, think about how you can, you know, look at the schedule, look at the offerings and services and, and, and really, uh, really kind of uh, question and and interrogate Uh um, previous systems. Um, the last thing I'll say about this in particular is, is related, which is how allies can raise consciousness in this work. Um, so I might have lived experience as a Latinx person who has been through graduate school and, and who has kind of seen this. But um, for folks who are asking, you know, how we can serve our, our students of color better, there is a part of liberation psychology that asks us to take these four steps. One, perceive. So, you know, really explore the system and your positionality in that system. What are you contributing to? What is, what is your role? Um, to recognize. So where do you see white supremacy ideology? Um, where do you see some of these um, historical uh, practices and policies that permeate the system? And again, what's your relationship with that, right? Um, three, now understand. So you're, okay, what did I glean from that observation? Um, am I ready? Do I have a willingness to step into a change model? And then number four is respond. So this is the long game, right? Um, are you willing to give up, especially for privileged people? Are you willing to give up some parts of the system? that serve others, um, give others dignity and honor. Uh, and, and I think this can be a challenging model, but I, I pull this from liberation psychology because I think it can really apply to what we're talking about in taking action. Right. And I think that those, yeah, they can apply anywhere. You know, this is how we create a just and inclusive campus by thinking about it in this way and not just jumping in, but actually stopping thinking how I'm involved and, um, and what is the appropriate action in this situation, you know, for me. So I think that that's really powerful. I want to go back to something else that you were um, talking about, and this is this pandemic, you know, it almost seems like we can't not talk about this. Um, And you know, I was listening to someone else say this today. I've heard you say that our students are hurting. Our students are not okay, I guess is the way to respond. You know, like um, having come off these last um, two years 
of just this intensity and all the pushing down that's been going on and that we hear words from people on our campus and from people in society saying, we recognize it's been hard. Now do this. You know, we recognize it's been hard, but let's carry on as if it isn't. But the words are there. And I really think maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about the importance of self-care as we think about these approaches to college mental health, Um, the importance of self-care, the importance of community care, the, you know, and how important they are for college students. And um, I want to know how you see the tensions and the realities sort of between those two concepts as we try to more appropriately and more innovatively respond to college mental, college student mental health and wellness. Let's see, Anna, would you take this for us? Start us off? Sure. I feel like self-care is so important and vital for all of us. And then I've gotten to a point that I hesitate to even use the term. Right. You know, like I say it and then it's like evoking like white women taking bubble baths or going shopping <laughs> or something like that. And it and it's just and so I feel like I gotta say it and then be like, and here's the caveat, here's what I actually mean, you know. So then I'm quoting Andre Lord and, and you know, kind of like let's reclaim the term itself. Sure. Um, my, t- my concern also is that it's used irresponsibly sometimes. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we are telling BIPOC, queer, or other marginalized students or others to practice self-care because we're not offering community care. Right. We're saying like, go do this thing to take care of yourself because we've created a structure that's harmful for you. Right. Um, but it's on you to find a way to counterbalance that by like making sure you somehow get enough sleep or um, eat nutritious foods or, or whatnot. Um, so I feel like when we do that, we're shirking a shared responsibility. Um, when in fact, like self-care and community care are both needed, then one's not a replacement for the other. Um, to me, self-care is something that's ideally proactive, right? It's about being present enough with yourself to know what's needed to keep yourself in balance and replenished. Um, which of course, and creating space for those things, which of course can look different for different people. So for some of us, that might literally be a bubble bath, but it could also be right, like alone time, slowing down, exercise, seeking a friend, meditating, you know, boundaries, all those things, right? And And then I feel like community care also, right, at its best, it's proactive. It's anticipating the needs that might be there, not only you know, a crisis happens where somebody's harmed or there's an incident nationally and like, oh, we should talk about this. If, if our first conversation about race is after George Floyd, then we have a problem, right? right, right, right. Um, but it's like, if the larger community is anticipating likely needs, thinking about them and creating a structure so that when stuff happens, we have a space to walk into, right? right. You know, where there's supports already there, which can look like community centers. It can look like Rise or Wyland, right? It can look like support groups, just visibility. What you see when you walk around campus can, if you feel seen, then you are, you feel more cared for. Um, and then how we do communicate when stuff happens, when stuff goes down. Um, All of those feel like they interconnect um, as long as we are making space to hold both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, hold both. Uh, That's so, you know, yes, um, uh, it's, it's absolutely 
kind of a, um, it saddens me almost that self-care has become so commodified and is almost performative now. Mm-hmm. And I think that really um, intersects with identity in so many different ways. So for um, those who identify as women, the, some of the pressures involve sort of this external representation of self-care, how we look and how kind of that messages to people that we're fine and we're not fine, uh, you know, but we're still kind of keeping up with um, society's pressures around what care or self-care looks like. Um, so I am in agreement that one of the things we do in this work is to um, recognize this has gotten away from us a bit and to kind of pull it back. I love what you said, reclaim uh, the term and, and the process. Um, I might use words like, you know, authentic self-care, candid self-care. And sometimes I'll just talk about resilience building uh, as, as a way to kind of remind folks um, this is a dynamic ongoing process. We're all deserving of accessing our own resilience. This isn't an extraordinary thing. We kind of have to dismantle resilience too, right? Um, all of us have the capacity for resilience. And frankly, um, the belief that if we were to continue to withhold resources and services from underserved people, that they will reach their, this resilient potential is damaging too. Right. So I think all of this work involves really naming and defining what it is that we're doing as we contribute to, to these spaces. Um, what I will say about the pandemic in particular is that uh, we are continuing to grapple with what's called the echo pandemic. And, and I want to acknowledge we're still in the crisis. I, I, I definitely name that we're still in the crisis and we're approaching the echo pandemic with, which for many, um, many in the mental health and psychology discipline, this means that we will continue to experience the psychological emotional impact of this crisis for years to come. And we are starting to see already the where the vulnerabilities are. Uh, if you lived in Los Angeles County and you were black or brown, you were two to three times more likely to contract uh, COVID. Um, you were, of course, less likely to receive accessible, high-quality medical services. And um, you know that has to be recognized that the economic, the financial, the occupational impacts that this has had is disproportionately affecting. Uh, our communities of color. The American Psychological Association issued a report that named communities of color, young people, um, and essential workers, which I think it really comprise, you know, a lot of our communities fit these groups. A lot of us fit these groups, right? And, and so it really hits home that we will continue to experience the demand. Um, and so for us, uh, having this conversation is so important because as healers and helpers, we also need to contribute to our own uh, care and compassion and not let all of this harm, you know, really, uh, really create the toxicity in us and our helping community. And I, I think this is something that is so important to talk about pretty openly, you know, with our campus. Now, that is such a, a key piece there because we're talking about students and our focus is on students because that's who we focus on. That's what, that's, that's what our job is. That's what we are um, called to do, so to speak. But at the same time, those of us who are working to lift those students, to be there for those students, 
are not paying attention to ourselves in this same process and the need to do that. I know that I hadn't been away in a long time. And for the first time, you know, like anybody, right? So the first time I took off for a Labor Day weekend and went to visit a friend, it was probably the first time in almost two years that I had done this. And I found myself finally having some space to think about how much I had pushed down and hadn't paid attention to. And I look at my colleagues in the same way, the colleagues who are battling with some of these issues within their families and how they've been pushing down. And so this is just a shout out to all of those listeners to remember that this this, this self-care, this focus on self has to begin with you. You know, put your own mask on first, so to speak, before you, you put it on um, the, the next person. Um, but I want to switch because I really want to give some folks some um, concrete tips, some ideas, some places that they can begin to um, provide some more innovative approaches for their campus. So I was wondering if you wanted to share a couple of examples from, from Wyland or RISE that might be helpful, or maybe some initiatives that were particularly impactful or had a particular impact or meaning um, for your students or something you folks haven't done. But if given the time or the resources or whatever, this is something you would institute. So I'm just looking for some, in a sense, some concrete ideas about what they can do on their campuses now. I can speak to a couple of concrete steps that I think are achievable. Um, In the beginning of this process, we formed a task force and and really gathered the folks in in our Students Affairs Division who were already doing some of this work. And, And I think that's probably the place to start is to acknowledge that on probably all of our campuses, there are people who are already taking the steps to place resilience um, into workspaces, into student spaces. And it's so important to recognize that. And that's the first question is who's doing it? Where is it happening? A lot of times student leaders are taking this on, include them in the conversation, give them paying jobs to do this, recognize their their inherent and learned um, talents related to how well they know their community. Uh, I can maybe bring in some examples from my own lived experience as a student, but that's, a, that's approximating, you know, what students are experiencing now. So it's always important to include their voice. Uh, when we formed this task force, we really were just sort of looking at what's happening and who's in this space. Mm-hmm. And then it's also important to kind of know that um, there are going to be there are going to be professionals who may not be ready or want to take on innovation who are sort of not, you know, mentally uh, prepared or they've done it before and they feel an experience of, of repeated um, setbacks. And so it's important, I think, to recognize that you're, we're really looking for willingness, eager folks, and, and to understand that like, it's okay that not everybody is cheerleading this and, and not to voluntold voluntel uh, people to be involved. Um, and then a little bit more with a little bit more specifics, I think what what we started to realize as we were putting the Rise Center together is that um, relationships were key, absolutely key. It's that impression management we had to do, mm-hmm. educating our faculty talking about the connection between well-being and academic success, right? Talking about um, with, again, 
gentle and loving approaches toward the system that is making us unwell. Uh, and creating healthy partnerships with established people, services, um, processes, practices, so that we're not, you know, out there alone trying to figure all this out. It really is about having partnerships. I think what is the most, um, I don't know, I, I hate to use the word exciting, but really what pulled me in was the opportunity to contribute to the culture on the campus related to mental health and well-being. So specifically, you know, Inga was talking about the, I, the fact that some students simply don't feel welcomed in these traditional spaces. One of the things that was so important for me in this work was to be embedded in, in, in the activities, in, in you know, it, be among student um, organizations and gatherings and say who you are, you know, for, for students to be like, wait, you're a psychologist, you do this? Um, they don't, some don't make that connection with our, with our CAPS, you know, our counseling center. And a very powerful part of this is the impression management, the public health education, the ability to say to students, no, you are welcome in health and wellness. Like you belong in those spaces and I'm, I'm going to, you know, help you get there. Thank you. First off, I just I want to highlight a couple of I love what you said, Dre, and, and a couple of things just want to echo or lift again is, you know, student voices and making sure we're compensating students for their time, you know, just making sure that we're acknowledging um, that their time's valuable and then the relationships piece. Um, so many times from a clinical perspective, students have come to see me after I did an outreach event or after I did a talk, like once they know me as a person, it's much easier to come in and get support. And so just like how that feels so different from, you know, what it must feel like to be a student walking in and talking to a stranger for the first time about something so vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, I also wanted to mention a few things that are just going to some concrete things that we've done that I feel like aren't particularly high cost, but have had a lot of impact. Um, one of those is with our, we, in our counseling center, we do have a training program. So we have pre-doc and, and post-doc um, tra psychology trainees. So shifting one of those post-doc positions just to have a specialty around gender and sexual identities, we attract people who have that interest. And then it also puts a responsibility on us to then um, make sure that we're on top of our game <laughs> and that we know what we're talking about when we create that training experience. And then they push us back in turn. And then we've created a number of programs for trainees that we then kind of require of trainees, but then try to make attractive enough that all staff will want to join. And then that can shift the culture of the whole team. Sure. So one of those is having just an ongoing um, GSI consultation group that we invite all clinicians to. And so any students that are talking about anything related to gender, sexuality, sexual health, they can come in and get support or they might come in for the whole year. And then at the end of the year, we have a 10 week um, training this more of a seminar that's it's more of a deep dive. And I think it pulls us away from this idea that a one-time workshop can really tell you what you need to know around a topic that's as nuanced as this. Sometimes I think that can do more harm than good. Like, oh, I went to the workshop, I'm cool. Um, yeah. At the end of the 10 weeks, more often people are like, I didn't realize how much I didn't know, but that's kind of where we want them. You know, I'm better equipped, but I'm more aware right. <laughs> of, of some of my own foggy spots, you know? Um, we do, and then a 
also kind of the training front. We do a big queer field trip each year. We go, we take a whole group of staff, whoever wants to sign up, we go into the city and um, into San Francisco and they have just an immersive learning experience around places that have historical or cultural significance around queer history, culture, and then wellness related resources. And it's very different, you know, to experience something live, be in it when you're in their space uh -huh. um, and have people talk about their experiences, what's out there, then learning something, you know, from a book or from the person in the classroom. And another thing that students have really appreciated is we've created a, a trans guide. And so um, for trans students, especially those who are trans and non-binary students just coming into campus, it can be so overwhelming. Like my ID card has the wrong name on it. How do I know that I can get matched with the right kind of roommate? Um, I, I need medical services, but like, I don't know who to talk to. So it just goes through all the resources on campus through a gender lens and what's available to them where. And so we're kind of that relationship piece Dre was talking about. We're kind of as much as possible trying to build that for them. Here is the person at the ID office that you can talk to about this. Here's where you find the you know, gender inclusive restrooms map, you know, all those kind of things. Um, and so then that's something that we have that we're then trying to just update every year. And then that's a great experience for a trainee to do, right? The postdoc comes in and then that's how part of how they learn campus is getting to know that guide and talking to everybody on campus to update it for the coming year. It is a great idea to have these guides. One, it because it's also assessment for the campus. If a student has to find this office <laughs> for any reason, maybe we should do something coming in so that they don't have to, uh, so they get the right name the first time, you know, and those kinds of things. So I like it as both a tool for the immediate and a long-term assessment for the campus. I love these um, ideas and these um um, suggestions that you have um, for me and for uh, our viewers and and we're basically running short on time you know like it, you know like it's, it's time to end we could keep this going maybe we will after we stop recording but um, I wanted to give you a chance for just a you know some kind of final thoughts what you want people to walk away with um, as we think about ending um, Drew why don't you start us off thank you I believe this conversation is really timely. A lot of campuses are experiencing what they're calling reemergence, return to campus, um, you know, post-pandemic opening. You know, there's lots of different ways that we can we can term this, and it's an opportunity for a lot of us to reflect on all these lessons learned um, related to our own resilience building, but also what students have been telling us for the last eighteen months. You know, we've not we've not been separated from them um, emotionally. We've been connecting with them in these um, virtual ways. And I think what I would advise is considering this little practice, um, asking our teams, asking yourself and your teams, what were the practices, habits, you know, the skills that you learned over the pandemic that really uh, served your well-being and, and made you more intuitive, made you more um, helping, just made you a better, um, you know, uh, professional in this work, serving students. And then, of course, the counterpart to that is, can you name in your on your team, in your department, even at the institution, what policies and practices no longer serve the well-being 
of you as an individual and the community. And it could be something as tiny as like, you know, well, I ended up taking a, a, a lunch each day. I actually took a lunch and did right. not get into my, you know, and here I am already back at UCLA hovering over my keyboard with trying to eat fast. I've, I've already kind of left that promise. So again, go back and, and, you know, maybe the, there are small things you can do, but there are also very, um, I'd say very innovative things that you can do if you can discard some of these kind of historical practices that, um, you know, were, were actually not as helpful. Um, so this, as we talk about the Rice Center, this means hey, we actually want to have big virtual spaces again. We want to have um, private healing spaces, dialogue for students who aren't even yet ready to walk into the RISE Center. We can make that available for them. So these are just you know, small examples of ways that we can build from what we learned throughout this crisis. Great, thank you, Jay. Yeah, I feel like there's two big things that come to my mind um, as we talk about all, all this today. One is, I was mentioning siloing before, but just like finding opportunities for things that are in kind of their own corners and looking at how things can intersect and collaborate. And when I'm saying that, I mean both where we started with like, you know, mental health and well-being world and whatever offices you have in charge of that. And then equity, inclusion, justice world, whatever offices you have in charge of that, like finding opportunities to be talking to each other, integrating your work. And I also mean for those of us working with particular identities, um, going beyond the identities that are we're kind of primarily specializing in or charged with. So for us, like thinking about how we can like as, as an organization that focuses on queer folks, how can we think about BIPOC students more? And if you're focusing on BIPOC students, how can you think about in particular students with disabilities or students who are first gen low income? Like how can we kind of expand to hold more identities outside of the ones that we've typically centered or served? Um, and another thing that in, in terms of a concrete piece that's been really useful for us as a framework when, when we're working with students, but also as we're doing the work, is this knowing being doing framework. Um, so many of us love to jump into doing, and sometimes that's exactly the thing to do. We do this conscious process, right, of spending some time in the knowing and the being. Um, what do we know about this situation or this student? And then what do we think we know that we need to unknow, right? Like right. what have we learned and what assumptions, what am I filling in um, that I might not even have been aware of doing that I need to step back and, and not fill in in order to see this more fully and accurately. Um, and the being is like, what is it like sitting with this and how do I want to sit with this and getting clear on all of that before we're like, here's the plan, here's the next step and so right. on. Right. You know, um, again, even your final thoughts, as connected as they were to everything else we were talking about, it's a session of itself. You know, how we can just now dig into the final thoughts that both of you offered. Um, and we're out of time. So I just want to say right now, I am so grateful for all of your time today, Inga and Drea. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for um, your contributions to this conversation. I think it was really important. And I know that this episode is going to be turned around and aired rather quickly. I don't know exactly when, but it will be. So I want to um, send heartfelt appreciation and thanks to our amazing and unflappable Nat Ambrosi, who does our behind the scenes pr production. So thanks, Nat. 
Folks, if you're listening today and you've not al- and you're not already receiving our um, weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com and scroll to the bottom of the homepage and um, add your email to our MailChimp list. And while you're there, check out our archives. Lots of great videos there. And if you found this conversation helpful, please share it on your social media platforms and share it with your colleagues and your students. Also, please subscribe to the podcast. Invite others to subscribe. Share on social media or leave a five-star review. It really helps conversations like these reach more folks and build a learning community. Finally, I also want to say or send a really big shout out to our sponsors. We really appreciate their support. So let's talk about Everfi, our first sponsor today. How will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students rate commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion as important as academics and extracurriculars. We talked about that in this session. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment and not an expense. For over 20 years, EverFi has been the trusted partner for over 1,500 colleges and universities. With nine efficacy studies behind our courses, you will have confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. Transform the future of your institution and the communities you serve. Learn more at everfi.com forward slash student affairs now. Our second sponsor, Leadership. Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in person, for students, um, professionals, and with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit www.leadership.org forward slash virtual programs or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and LinkedIn at Leadership. So please, folks, take time to visit our sponsors and learn more. Again, I'm Rochelle Pope. Thanks again to both Drea and Inga today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Look, I've been really thinking about John Lewis these last few months. So Go out there and make some good trouble. Thank you.